That is definitely better. Thank you, everyone. I think we might have to arrange for Chompy to be on a different week to me next time. Uh, it's lovely to be with you for the start of this new uh, sermon series, thinking about the topic of joy. Uh, where do you find joy? You know, where do you go to get that little dose of pure happiness that you need every now and then? And there are, of course, the usual suspects, you know, that, that dinner out with friends, uh, the block of Cadbury dairy milk chocolate that you happen to make disappear in one sitting, uh, a lovely walk out in the bush on a nice day like today. All good things. Enjoy those things. Thank God for those things. Find joy in those things. But at the same time, if you're someone who knows Jesus, which is most of us here today, then you know that there's more to the story, isn't there? You've got access to other joys. You've got access to deeper joys. You've got access to joys that last longer, joys that don't depend on the fickle things of life like your abilities and your opportunities and your efforts. There are these joys out there that belong exclusively to God's people. No one else gets access to them. And frankly, let me be honest, you and I are ripping ourselves off if we don't make the most of these special joys. Which is why I'm looking forward to this term of Bible teaching that we're going to do together. We're calling it Great Joy. Uh, and it's because a few months ago, around Christmas time, I was pondering the words that we hear when Jesus is born. You probably remember it. You probably heard it a thousand times. An angel comes, is talking to the shepherds while they're freaking out. And the angel says to them in Luke chapter 2, he says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's, that's like a little nutshell summary of Jesus. He's good news bringing great joy for everyone. And that idea of Jesus bringing great joy for everyone, it's stuck in my mind. I started kind of working my way through the Bible and finding places where this idea of great joy crops up. And it turns out it's only in a few places. About a dozen places all up across the entire Bible where this idea of great joy is present. And then as I've, as I've looked through those different parts of the Bible, I've realized that actually add them all up and they give us a pretty darn good summary of the kind of good things that can be ours, that are ours as God's people if we pay attention to them. And so that's the plan for this term here at Central Villages. We're going to be training ourselves to think about how to recognize some of these deep joys, the deep joys that belong to us as Christians. We're actually going to go through nine of these great joy passages together. We're going to think about what it is that is giving God's people joy. How can we have it today in our lives? A little added bonus along the way is that doing this is going to take us to some parts of the Bible that are a little bit less well-trodden, you know, places we don't normally head to, but where there is absolutely gold to be found. And uh, that's exactly the kind of place that we are starting with today. Uh, we're in a book of the Bible called Two Chronicles. Uh, one and two chronicles are telling the tale of the kings of ancient Israel, how they botched it, but also how they got it right. And in the section we're looking at, and uh, mad props to Brad for reading it very long, we see it going right. We see God taking his people from a very dark place and restoring them. Now, things had gotten very grim. It's about the year 710 BC. Things are dark and hopeless, but then... In the course of a couple of months, everything changes. They're in this terrible place, they're in this terrible state, but then they get brought back. Their faith gets restored. Their hope gets restored. And the whole experience brings them this deep, meaningful joy, a joy they were never going to find anywhere else. 
Now, this is the great joy that comes from God restoring his people. Now, I know that probably not everyone's going to be up to speed on their Old Testament history, so let me give you a bit of a recap. You remember the Exodus, right? It's a very famous bit. God brings his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. At that moment is a defining moment in Israel's history. At that point, they belong to God. They're formed together as a nation, and they know that God loves them, cares for them, will look after them. He takes them to the promised land. He protects them. He provides for them. He sets up a temple as a way that these newly loved people can keep on relating to him, can keep on saying thank you. And to begin with, it's happy days. And for for ages, for centuries, God's people don't have a king. Israel doesn't have a king. That they were instead, they were led by God himself. He speaks through his prophets. But, But the time eventually comes in Israel's history where they get a little bit antsy. Israel's this rather small nation surrounded by lots of big, powerful, scary nations. And they start feeling a little bit weak and helpless. And they latch onto the idea that if only we had a king, a king, a big, brave guy who could defend us and protect us, then we would be happy. Then we would feel stronger. God hears this. He hears this request and he's like, guys, you do not know what you're asking for. This is a bad idea. Uh, But they keep on complaining. They keep on asking. And eventually God says, yeah, sure. You can get what you want. You can have your king, but it has like a giant asterisk next to it. This is actually not a good plan at all. God says there is a warning attached to this. The kings will not be a good influence over you. Many of these kings will come along and they'll end up leading you away from me. They'll become obsessed with things like being strong and mighty. They'll become obsessed with worshipping other gods. Israel gets their kings. And of course... Trouble is exactly what happens. We have this long line of flawed kings. King Saul, the first king, a very flawed guy. King David, the second king, the main king, the big guy. He's very good, but there are these little flaws that poke through. We're going to get some drums. (laughs) After King David comes King Solomon. King Solomon is the first successor in David's family line. He does some good stuff, but he's also fundamentally flawed. And then, across the next 250 years of kings, you get way more bad fruit than you get good fruit. Uh, The good fruit is when the kings come along and they recognize, actually, it's my job to lead these people in following God. I'm called to submit to him. I'm called to live out what it looks like to be a devoted follower of the Lord. The bad fruit, the rotten fruit comes in when these men, one after the other, end up getting distracted away from the reason they are there. They don't care about God. They love wealth. They love power. They love other gods. They love other religions. If you read the history, it's like this downward spiral. The flaws, the rotten fruit just get embedded in deeper and deeper. One after another, you get these kings who could not give a stuff about God and his ways. And the, and the effect on the people of Israel is pretty terrible. When you're living under that kind of leadership, when the leaders over you are telling you to ignore God, then you end up doing it. When the leaders don't take God seriously, then you also end up not taking God seriously. And that's because over time, the things that you did to help you remember God and follow God, they get lost. They get removed. They get neglected. You read Israel's history and you realize that there are some very dark times and it reaches a terrible kind of peak with this king named Ahaz. 
We read about him at the start of the reading a second ago. King Ahaz reigns for 16 years. They are the worst 16 years in Israel's history. Ahaz chooses to join forces with the Assyrian invaders and they end up taking over the 11 northern tribes of Israel and carrying them off and destroying them. Uh, Only Judah remains in the south, the kingdom that's led by Ahaz. Ahaz becomes obsessed with these foreign gods. He, He shuts down the temple, locks its doors, and instead he sets up altars and idols on like every street corner in Jerusalem. Eventually, he gets defeated in battle by the king of Damascus. And that makes him think, aha, I've been praying to the wrong God. And he starts going, I'll pray to the king of Damascus's God because he worked for him, so maybe he'll work for me as well. Maybe the most horrifying thing is that during this period, King Ahaz begins the practice of child sacrifice in the valley right next to Jerusalem because that's what his new gods demanded of him terrible king and the average joe israelite just kind of living their life they have their relationship with god sucked away in the process all of the promises that god made to israel about israel being his people they're forgotten all of the things that you used to do to say i depend on god you know the prayers and the sacrifices and the festivals all which showed your trust in god they're gone The people who are left are left alone, without your God, without their protector, without any hope that they are wanted and loved, all thanks to this wretched king and his pathetic leadership. And the people, they start to twig to the fact that this king is a rotten guy, so much so that when he dies, they don't put him in the tombs that have been prepared for the kings. They're like, he does not deserve that. They bury him in a different grave. This guy is not worthy of the title of king. But the damage is done. Their relationship with God is ruined. But then along comes King Hezekiah. And he's nothing like his dad. Hezekiah comes to power at age 25. He rules for nearly 30 years and it's happy days for God's people. Happy days because they get reminded of what they've lost. Happy days because they get taken back to God and they remember that they are loved, that they are protected, that they are wanted. First thing he does when he comes to power is he cracks open the doors of the temple. You can imagine the dust, imagine the grossness, but, but he cracks it open. We are back to worshipping God. And he calls together all the priests and the Levites. They're like the groups of people in society whose whose job it was to run the temple. And he's like, guys, you've enjoyed a nice long 16-year paid holiday, but it's time for that to come to an end. We're getting back to work. They go through the temple. They clear out all the crud. They clear out all the terrible stuff that Ahaz had put in there. They're able to restart the sacrificial system and praying prayers again, all good stuff. But the real joy comes when the whole rest of the community start getting involved. They decide to celebrate this festival called the Passover. It was the most important festival for an ancient Israelite. It was a chance for them to remember the way God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And, And the fact that it was the wrong time of the year to celebrate the Passover, who cares, right? They're so keen to be back knowing God, worshiping God. They're like, let's just do it. Let's just do the festival anyway. They send messages out throughout the land saying, we're going to do the Passover. Come to Jerusalem. We're going to worship God. We're going to ask him to turn his anger away from us. Come on back. 
The messengers travel. Most of the time they get rejected. Most of the people out there that do not care about God, they're too far gone. But some people hear that and they go, yes, that's what I want. I want that long lost relationship with God to be restored again. And so those people gather in the city, they celebrate the Passover. And one bit I love is that they don't do it quite right. They don't quite follow the the kind of tightly defined rules for the Passover correctly. But God says he frankly doesn't mind. Here's how it goes down. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, they're like the northern tribes, although they'd not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what was written. You know, what's going to go wrong? But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets their heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they're not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and he healed the people. This is such a beautiful little moment. It's beautiful when you stop and remember that there have been plenty of times in Israel's history where God said, this whole temple shtick, what is the point? You guys are making your sacrifices. You're supposedly doing everything I asked you to do, but there's no love. There's no real relationship with me. There's no thankfulness to me. You're just going through the motions. So shut it down. God said time and time again to Israel. But this time it's very different. This time, they're technically breaking some of the rules, but who cares? They've come back out of darkness and into the light. They've come back into a real living relationship with God again. And so as far as he's concerned, it's all good. In fact, they are having such a good time that they decide to do the whole celebration twice. I love this. Uh, Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites, who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For seven days, they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors. This is what they're supposed to do, right? The the festival is supposed to go for seven days. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. It's supposed to go for a week, but at the end of the week, they are so pumped that they agree, one more week, guys. We do not want the party to end too soon. Let's just keep it going. And we get told exactly how they're feeling. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and Levites and all who'd assembled from Israel, including the foreigners who'd come from Israel and also those who resided in Judah. There was great joy. There's the phrase. Great joy in Jerusalem. But since the days of Solomon, son of King David, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. They get brought back to God. Their life with God is restored and renewed. And the effect is great joy. And what I'd love for each one of us to realize is that this great joy can be ours as well. The great joy that comes from seeing God restore his people. I don't know about you, but when, when I tend to think about God and the way he acts in the world... I tend to think about the way he acts with individuals. You know, we, we kind of get that God is in the business of bringing individual people back to himself. We, we were celebrating it last weekend, weren't we? We looked at the cross of Christ, this bold, powerful declaration from God that he wants for people to be back with him, that he's willing to bear the immense, painful price 
to see people back with him. And we celebrate it and we find joy in that. We get that God is in the business of bringing people back to himself one by one, but I think we pretty easily forget the fact that sometimes, sometimes God is bringing back entire groups of people to himself. This is a story that has been repeated across history. You know, where the hope and faith of people gets eroded away through bad leadership. The leadership stopped caring about God. Eventually it filters down to the people. But then you get these moments in time where God steps in and he restores that relationship for a whole whack of people. You see it famously in the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s, the 1600s in Europe. It's supposedly this Christian time. Apparently everyone went to church, but what they knew of Christianity was lifeless. It was about ritual and about power and about control. Hundreds of years of bad church leadership had seen to that. But then everything changes. Because you get this renewed appreciation for the Bible. There's this rediscovery of the truths of grace. And it filters down firstly from like the academic smarty pants through to like the church leaders and then from the church leaders down to the church members. And within a couple of decades, the entire church is alive again. It's been reborn from the ashes. Millions of people finding their joy in Jesus. It's there in this thing called the Great Awakening. This was in the the late 1700s, early 1800s in England and in America. Just like during the the Protestant Reformation, the church by this stage had become a little bit stale, a bit lifeless. You had these generations of ministers who they were in these positions of power and responsibility, but they didn't believe a thing. It was just this good job for well-educated young men, go and become a clergyman. You don't have to believe anything. Just tick the box. Just do a service on Sunday. But then God brings about this fresh generation of Christians and they hunger after the truth. And as they hunger after the truth, they transform the entire church. It gets revived back to life again. It's not just a historical thing either. We're even seeing it right today in the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church is like a worldwide movement, right? Started in England, but it's spread out across the globe. And in so many places, it is struggling. Struggling to hold its nerve. Struggling to commit to preaching the Bible and preaching Jesus. So many of the leaders of the Anglican Church are uncertain about what they believe. And that filters down into the people. To be very frank, there are some dark days ahead for the Anglican Church as big sections of the church decide that they don't believe the gospel anymore. But there are also some really good, joyful stories of what's happening out there. Uh, You might have heard of a guy named John Chapman, very famous evangelist who grew up here in Sydney and evangelized a whole generation. He died about a decade ago. And what you might not know about John Chapman is that before he became the worldwide evangelist, his first job out of Moore College was in Armadale Diocese, where I'm going to end up a bit later this year. Uh, He got appointed as the youth uh, evangelist for Armadale Diocese. 
Now, Armadale Diocese at this stage was lifeless and dead. The churches had no people in them, and those who were there didn't believe any of it anyway. But John Chapman comes along and he starts preaching to the next generation, to the high schoolers. They come to faith. Give it about a decade, and now they're the ones running the churches, and the church is alive again. It happened again in Tasmania in the 2000s. It's happening today in places like Bendigo and Bathurst and the Northern Territory. And what's happening is that people who actually believe the Scriptures are being put in places of leadership, and they're, and they're teaching and practicing a living faith, and it's causing whole churches to come back to life again. People are remembering that Jesus is actually a joy and not a burden. It's not just in Australia either. Uh, there is this diocese out there called the Diocese of the Indian Ocean. You might think, why does an ocean need to have a diocese? You know, diocese for the fish or something. But no, no, no. turns out there are islands in the Indian Ocean where people live. What do you know? Uh, places like Mauritius and the Seychelles and Madagascar. And this diocese has historically been rather Catholic in its practices. Like so much so that the diocese doesn't have its own training college. They just send all of their people to the Roman Catholic training college because there's no functional difference. However, things are changing. Uh, there's a new bishop who grew up there, who is taking the Bible seriously. And he's raising up a new generation of ministers, and some of them are starting to understand what the Bible teaches. Uh, one of them uh, visited uh, Sydney a couple of years back, and he spoke at Sydney's Synod, this big gathering of Anglican leaders. And uh, he told the Synod how excited he was a few years ago to find a book by a guy named John Stott called The Cross of Christ. And he read The Cross of Christ and realised that Jesus died for his sins. And he said, the next week he just started teaching that to his church. And it changed everything. And this guy has now been put in charge of theological training in the Diocese of the Indian Ocean. You think, yeah, this is good. Things are changing. You know, you know what ties all these together? You know, the Protestant Reformation and the Great Awakening and the, and the renewal of the Anglican Church. It's that they are so similar to what you see in 2 Chronicles with Hezekiah. For each one of them, you have this group of people who, they're vaguely religious. They have like a memory of, at some point in the past, our ancestors knew God. But it's become lifeless. It's become about just kind of like ticking a box. There's no joy. There's no life changing your eternity. But then God turns it around. And there's obviously great joy you're coming your way if you're someone who's in the middle of that, experiencing it. But I want to urge each one of us that there is great joy for us as we stand on the sidelines and see it happening and get to rejoice in seeing what God is doing in the lives of others. I suspect that for so many of us, we are so busy that we just don't even notice what's going on in the world around us. One of my greatest personal regrets is that I didn't notice my own parents being restored to God. Uh, the year was 2005. I'd come to faith a couple of years beforehand, but in 2005, it was my first year at uni. Life had gotten busy. I'd met Alison. You know how that goes. And, and so when, when my own parents started getting evangelized by my church, I, I barely noticed. You know, when my mum attended a Christianity Explored course, 
and said yes to Jesus and then started going to Bible study, it barely even registered as a blip on my radar. And when my dad started reading apologetics books and getting all his long-held questions answered and, and as, his, as his long, dormant, sleepy faith kind of roared back to life, I was too busy hanging out in uni and too busy picking flowers for Allison and I just didn't pay any attention. And to be perfectly honest with you, I kick myself. I kick myself not because they needed my help and not because God needed my help. I kick myself because in not paying attention, I missed out on getting to soak up that once-in-a-lifetime joy of seeing my own parents become followers of Jesus. And since then, I've resolved, I don't want to miss any more of that joy. I want to keep my eyes and my ears open to what is God doing around me and around the world so that I can rejoice every day. Whole communities are being transformed. Every day, people are being restored to God. And I want to urge you to make sure that you, in the busyness of life, that you are paying attention to what's going on. You know, read the missionary prayer letters and subscribe to the CMS news updates and get the Voice of the Martyrs emails. Keep your eyes and your ears open because there is great, deep joy to be had as one of God's people as you sit back and marvel at the miracle of people coming back to God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are day by day doing miracles and the biggest miracle of them all, people finding life in Jesus, it is happening. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just one by one, but that sometimes whole communities come back to you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in that, that we would find deep joy. Help us to keep our eyes open, to keep our ears attuned. Help us to hear what you are doing and to give you all the glory for it, to give you all the praise for it. Thank you that this is a joy that we can have in our lives of seeing you bring life where there was only death. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.